speak to us as we come to this time in our services we come with the understanding that, that life is loud all kinds of things are speaking to us every day from uh, TVs to friends to feeds on the computer to our own hearts and so our burden here at Temple Hills Baptist Church is that we need a constant reset a refresh we need the Lord to to open up his word and instruct us. And so we do that this morning. We learn from him in his word. We pray that the Lord would, would tell us and instruct us from his word. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we'll look at verses 8 through 15 together. We've been in a sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. We've been hearing Paul instruct his pupil Timothy, and by extension, the church in Ephesus where Timothy is at, and then by extension, us, the 21st century church here in Temple Hills. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Timothy 2, and we'll start at verse 8 this morning. Paul says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, or not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I wonder how many of you read this passage ahead of time this week and dreaded this sermon. And Paul has some hard things to say here. We need to understand what he means by them. But my prayer this morning is that we would all be encouraged by God's word and not discouraged. And that we would not find Paul's words here to be oppressive but life-giving as he instructs us from God on how to live as God has called us to live. And indeed, I think that's what Paul's main point is in this passage. That the church should gladly display God's good design for men and women to worship him in distinct but harmonious ways. All right, so, so if you want to know what, what Paul means by these instructions to, to men and to women here in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, I think it's this, that the church of Jesus Christ, the church should gladly display God's good design for men and women to worship him in distinct but harmonious ways. And in this passage, I think Paul uh, presents two tasks, charges to both men and women. And so we, those will be the two points of the sermon. Uh, point number one, what should mark men in the church? We see that in verse 8. 
And then point number two, what should mark women in the church? We see that in verses 9 through 15. So not a very creative outline, I know, but I think it's faithful to what the text is. So point number one, what should mark men in the church? Uh, look at verse 8 again. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul, in our last section, began giving the church positive instructions on what they should be doing, how they should be living. You remember back in chapter 1, he gave them what they should oppose, namely false teaching regarding myths and genealogies. And then last week, he began positively instructing the church to devote themselves to prayer for all kinds of people, modeling God's heart for all kinds of people. Well, here in the verses we'll look at this morning, we see Paul giving specific instructions for how different kinds of people who make up the church are to live. That is, he talks about how men and women are to behave in the church. What should characterize them? And it's worth noting up front that Paul understands there to be a distinction, a God-given distinction between men and women. Paul sees that there are two and only two different genders created by God to fulfill God's purpose in distinct ways. That isn't Paul being controversial or being groundbreaking. This isn't Paul's unique take on life. Paul is simply echoing Genesis, as we'll see later, and all the people before him who held that same distinction for thousands of years before he showed up. And friends, 2,000 years later, that thousands of year old truth has not changed. If we are to be faithful to the scriptures as God's authoritative word, then we must faithfully hold to the Bible's teaching on gender. God created men and women differently to show off the full display of his glorious beauty. As a church, we must Embrace that. We're not out to be the theological grammarly, editing God, uh, trying to correct or improve upon what God has said. No, what God has said is good for us. He created everything, including us, and so he is authorized to tell us how we are to function. He starts off here with, with men. And, and Paul's command here is simple, to pray. Pray in every place without quarreling or anger. The command is a continuation to Paul's charge up in verses 1 and 2, to pray for all people. And specifically here, he highlights how men should obey that charge. Now, I don't think that he means that only men are to pray in the church. Actually, we see elsewhere women praying. That's promoted. But I think one thing it highlights is that men are to be actively involved in the life of the church, in one of the main activities in the church, praying. For Paul, the church is not simply an arena for sisters. I mean, how often have we heard of and seen churches filled with our sisters so faithfully serving, for which we're grateful, but leaving us to ask, where are all the brothers at? Friends, the church is not just for women. The church is for sinners who need to be saved and to know the only true Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And as all people need to be saved, so men and women should make up the church. Having been introduced to and experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. And now I get the idea that Paul is referring to the context of the church here. By that phrase, in every place, right, in verse 8. That is, in every place where the church gathers. You see that in other places where Paul uses the same phrase. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul starts off writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who, in every place, are called upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In every place seems to refer to wherever saints are gathered together in the name of Christ. As we've noted before, Paul is writing this letter to to instruct the church uh, how it ought to behave, right? Uh, how the household of God, the, the, the church of the living God, ought to behave together. Uh, so we need to read this entire passage as referring to what happens in the local gathered body of believers. Men ought to be there. And not just so we can mark presence on the roads. Men are to be active, praying in the church, participating in the church. Brothers, understand that there's a spiritual tone that's set by your reaction to church. If you rarely come, chances are your wife or your family will rarely come. If you're hesitant to come or grumbling in coming, or if when you come, you just sit stoically, uninvolved and unmoved, it trickles down and affects others. Well, Joshua seems to know that the influential effect of spiritual fervor or the lack of it. We all know that, that famous verse where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you see the flow of direction there? First, as for me, I will serve the Lord. And then as a result or as a reflection, my household as well. We can't force others into faith, into worshiping the Lord. But we can model it. So brothers, let me ask, what kind of spiritual example are you setting? Does your family see you eagerly up and at it to, to go to work and make money, but sluggish in coming to church? Do they find you more enthusiastic Sunday afternoons cheering a team you don't know than on Sunday mornings in spiritual worship with blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, one of the joys of Sundays for me is seeing men here who love Jesus. Men singing loudly, bellowing out hearty amens during the sermon and the prayers. It's not just an outward act, but an outward demonstration of internal gratitude to God for what he's done in transforming us. And that transformation in men's lives is meant to be seen. I think we see that in Paul's words and highlighting not merely what men should be doing, but how they should be doing them. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. The focus isn't on the posture of the hands. The focus is on the posture of the heart that's put on display. That reference to holy hands might bring your mind to Psalm chapter 24, verse 4, where David says that the one who has clean hands, 
and the pure heart is the one who shall stand in the holy place. A holiness is to mark men as they gather in corporate worship. A purity of heart should mark us. You know, one of the things I lament today is the assumption that this kind of purity is impossible. I mean, it's almost thrown out as a given that men, even men in the church, will instead be marked by impurity, often the area of sexual impurity. It's expected that men will be addicted to pornography or be engaged in fornication or some other sexual sin. I know that's not solely a male problem. I know it's something that females struggle with as well. But for men, it almost seems to be the norm. People expect it to be the case. Men in the church expect it to be the case. But Paul assumes the exact opposite. He expects men to live pure, holy lives. And brothers, that's not some pie-in-the-sky ideal. And dwelt by the almighty spirit of the living God, that is yours to have. Regardless of, what, of your past, of what you may have looked at last night or in the wee hours of the morning, what may have had a hold on you, a, a bind on you for years, that does not have to be your future. You can live a life pleasing to God, a life of holiness and purity that sparks praise and worship of God. Because you know it's, it's the opposite of purity, of holiness, that often prevents us from praying, from gathering with other believers in worship. Saints, sin snuffs out zeal for the Lord. Where there's known unrepentant sin in our lives, it creates a hindrance to approaching God. We feel like we can't or shouldn't talk to him. But the remedy is to confess your sins to God, to turn away from them. Jesus Christ died for every single one of them and will forgive you of all of them if you confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We should worship the Lord in holiness. Paul says our worship of God should be in praying also without anger or quarreling. Maybe there was a specific instance in the Ephesian church where uh, there was constant disputing that Paul is meaning to correct. Or maybe it's just the general tendency of men to constantly be in a kind of competition with each other, jockeying for position, even in spiritual settings that, that Paul wants to challenge you. Remember Jesus' disciples, in the presence of God in the flesh, arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Or maybe the anger that Paul is out to unravel here to show us incompatible with Christian character has to deal with the man's anger towards authorities whom Paul just addressed at the beginning of the chapter. No matter what they've done or what policies they've enacted, a Christian man's response is not to be animated with furious anger, hurling all sorts of insults at them, but to, as Paul instructed, pray for them without anger. A man's demeanor should display the holy character of God who desires all people to be saved. So what kind of man are you? What defines you? Is it anger or quarreling? Well, you know, one of the solutions is to pray for the person you're angry or arguing with. 
It's hard to hate the person you constantly pray for. And that's true both for men and for women. But in addressing men here in verse 8, Paul, I think, is placing a specific burden on men to lead out in living a vibrant, transformed, holy life of committed faith in God. That's what should mark men, godly men, in the life of the church. Which then leads Paul to addressing man's counterpart, godly women, and what they should be characterized by in the gathering of the local church. So point number two, what should mark women in the church? And in these verses, Paul points out two things in particular. Modest dress and humble submission. Now first, we see modest dress encouraged in verses 9 and 10. Uh, look at verse 9 with me. Uh, Paul says, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And that word likewise at the beginning of verse 9 is carrying over the instructions from verse 8. In verse 8, Paul desires men to behave a certain way in the church. And in verse 9, likewise, that women should behave a certain way in the church. And he starts with clothing. And it's not because Paul is the fashion police. Rather, it's what certain clothing and accessories communicate. I mean, we know that phenomenon in our own day. We have phrases that express it. We might say, your shirt is too loud. It's too bright or too colorful to be worn in a serious setting. It might communicate that you aren't professional. Well, it was the same in Paul's day. There was a certain kind of apparel that communicated things about you that Paul is addressing here. He tells the women in the Ephesian congregation to adorn themselves, clothe themselves in respectable apparel, positively with apparel that demonstrates modesty and self-control decency and discretion. Uh, they were to show some restraint in what they wore. The object in dressing up and showing up to the church gathering wasn't to be showy or sexually provocative. It wasn't to attract the most lookers or the most attention or the most compliments. The purpose of the gathering was to praise God, not to admire a woman's attire or physique. And so Paul goes on to list some specific ways a woman should not dress. She should not be adorned or clothed with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, I think it's important to, to note here that, that there's a principle that's being applied. The issue is not with these items in and of themselves. I mean, there's nothing inherently evil about gold. Uh, the Old Testament temple was filled with gold. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth will have streets that are paved with gold. Uh, neither is there anything inherently wrong with costly attire. I mean, the high priest robes of the Old Testament had all kinds of jewels on them. They were very costly. Right? The issue here is not these specific hairstyles or items as inherently bad, but rather what they communicated. They communicated immodesty. I listened to a man named Philo, who was a philosopher and the Roman province in the first century. 
he wrote about pleasure as opposed to virtue. And he wrote that the pleasure dresses up in the form of a harlot or a prostitute. Her hair is dressed in curious and elaborate plaits. She wears costly raiment or clothing and bracelets and necklaces and every other feminine ornament wrought of gold and jewels hang around her. Right, so, so in the first century, for a woman to, to wear all these kind of, of gold accessories and pearls and have her hair a certain way, what was dressing and communicating as dressing someone who was a prostitute. All right, so you see what Paul's challenge is here. Paul doesn't care that a woman has a gold bracelet. He cares that a woman is wearing those things in a way that might communicate to others something totally opposite than what a Christian should communicate. Right, he cares about what they communicate to the local church gathering and to the world around them that watches. These items that Paul forbids were, were the garb that women would use to, to grab men's attention, and promoting a kind of excess and sensuality that was inappropriate for anyone bearing the name of Christ. There's a way that Christian women, women shouldn't dress. That's what Paul says here. Right? It's, it's a way that, that she shouldn't look, right? In a way that's trying to seduce men. That, that's, that's totally off-putting. But, but look at verse 10. There is a proper way for women who, who profess to be godly to dress. They should dress with good works. Now just notice here how Paul is upholding women. I think that's important to see here. It's not me just trying to put a positive spin on Paul's words in a passage that is otherwise hard to digest. It's just looking at what Paul says. I mean, I think we can put so much attention on what Paul doesn't allow for women that it takes our view of how much he values women. He wants women to dress in a way that matches their profession of godliness, of living to please and honor God. Notice here, he doesn't question whether a woman can do this or not. As someone created in God's image for that very purpose, Paul naturally assumes that women can live godly lives. But Paul just doesn't want anything to detract from that profession or to call into question that profession. And so he warns against gaudy or seductive dress at the expense of living a godly life. And notice instead what he commends that women should be known for, that they focus their attention on good works producing good works. For Paul, it's not true that women are no good for anything or that they're only good for cooking or cleaning or making and taking care of babies. He does not limit the amount of good works that women can and should and do produce. No, he says that they are all capable and able and called to produce all kinds of good works, just as all followers of Jesus Christ are. Remember what Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the spotlight shouldn't be on how good a woman's body is or how good her beauty is that's far too small of you far beneath you the spotlight should be on how good a woman's works are that shine a light on the worth of a woman's savior 
sisters, your life is not about your looks. Your life is about your Lord. You have been made and set on mission to focus on the things that make him look glorious. I hope that encourages you. Even as TV commercials and Instagram photos and magazine ads try to convince you of a standard of beauty that is seemingly unattainable. Sisters, external beauty has its place. All right, don't hear me wrong here. I am not saying, please don't email me after, after service, all right? I am not saying that you should go and throw out your wardrobe or your makeup collection. Keep your Fenty. I am not saying that you should cancel your hair or nail appointments. Keep those on your calendar. But I am saying that you are so much more than that. Your life can be a walking advertisement, not of your own beauty, but of the beauty and worth of the almighty living God who produces in you a far more lasting and pleasing beauty. As the Apostle Peter said, an imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight, not man's, is very pleasing. Show off that kind of beauty to the world. Let me give a word to our brothers here. Yes, Paul is addressing women, but there are men in the church who are listening. I think this verse causes us to do some things, too. I think it calls on us to, to purge our hearts from subscribing to and promoting a standard of beauty that is more worldly than biblical. Brothers, we're going to have to stop watching porn, which only promotes immodesty. We're going to have to stop lusting after celebrities and the way they dress. And then projecting onto our spouses or other women how they must dress if they want to catch or keep our attention. And making them feel worthless if they don't. Learn to love the woman the Lord's given you. And love her, not merely for how she looks, love her for how she lives. It's not a woman's outfit, but her output. It's not what she puts on, but what she produces that's most important. Good works that match her gospel profession and give glory to God. A modest apparel, but abundant spiritual fruit is one thing that should mark a Christian woman. Another thing that should mark a Christian woman in the church is humble submission. I think we see that in the remaining verses. So look there with me at verses 11 and 12. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I think it's these verses that have garnered the most pushback to Paul. I mean, they hit us and they immediately sound wrong to many of us. Perhaps sitting there right now, there's a kind of built up desire to, to buck against what these verses are saying, all right? Perhaps welling up inside of us is some resistance. Or, or maybe you land on the total opposite spectrum. You wholeheartedly subscribe to the commands of these verses, but maybe it's for the wrong reasons. You know, the truth of the matter is that we all need to face, when we come to the scriptures, that we come with a lot of smoke in our clothes. All right, you, you ever been somewhere where it's smoky? 
And then you go to another setting where there ain't been smoking or ain't been no smoke, and they're like, where the heck have you been? And you, you don't smell any of it coming off of you, but everyone else senses it. Well, I think that's how we are with the scriptures. We all come to the Bible, we come to the church with a lot of baggage already, where we carry with us the sense from the cultures we live in, the sense from the homes we grew up in, the sense from the churches we've attended, the sense from the friends who've influenced us, the sense from the media that in many ways have formed us. We bring a whole lot of baggage into reading the Bible. Some of us come to this verse perhaps shaped by the modern mantra that a woman can and should do whatever a man can do. And there shouldn't be any limitations. In, in fact, there's little need for men at all, really. It's girl power over male presence. Some of us may come with that mindset or, or perhaps a more subdued mindset, but still suspicious of and slanted towards bucking against Paul's command because perhaps you've personally been a victim or have seen men abuse their authority, treating women as doormats, as lesser beings, not equal with men, and not as competent or creative or capable as men. Maybe you've seen women in church whose job, it seems, was just to shut up and watch the kids, not to be engaged as social and spiritual equals. Maybe you come to that come to this verse with that mindset already ingrained in you. But you pretty much believe what the scriptures teach. And maybe you happily point to this verse to put a woman in her place, claiming I'm just being biblical. Not realizing that your supposed pure biblicism is actually mixed with a heavy dose of chauvinism. We need God's help to wash out worldly and unbiblical understandings of these verses and to give us a true and God-honoring understanding and application of them. Lord, help us to do that. Help us, Lord. So first off, notice here that the value that Paul puts on women. Uh, again, we focus so much on the limits that we miss the liberties. Paul commands in verse 11, let a woman learn. That might not jump out to us, but it was very countercultural in a male-dominated Jewish society where women were often undervalued. It's very countercultural in societies today. You just look at what's going on in Afghanistan and the Taliban's restriction on women from going to school. And you can see how upsetting this would be in many cultures. But Paul here encourages the instruction and spiritual formation of sisters in Christ. There's not a male-only church a service where heavy theology is taught, the hard verses are explained, and then after this kind of male-only service, a kind of lesser female-only program where women are taught how to knit and to bake and to set a table. Now, I'm not belittling any of those things, right? That, that's fine to learn. But Paul wants women to have the same kind of instruction from God's word the same kind of edification from God's word as their brothers do. God's word is for all of God's people. He makes clear here what Jesus modeled. Remember back in, in Luke chapter 10, when, when Martha was busy with all the serving duties, 
that a woman would typically be responsible for in a home. While her sister Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet while he taught. What did Jesus say? Mary, what you doing sitting here? Go do what a woman's supposed to go do. No, instead, he told Martha that while her work was good, that she should come join Mary in the better portion, being instructed by the Lord as he spoke, taught, and preached his word. Paul wants sisters to partake of the better portion, to feed from God's word and grow in their understanding of it. Sisters, that's what we want for you in this local church. I love seeing our sisters here on Sunday mornings, even through masks and sunglasses this morning, right? Right, with your Bibles open. You chase, y'all like superheroes. Y'all chasing down kids, got your Bible open, singing. Y'all doing like 10 things at once, right? I love seeing your spiritual hunger for the Lord. And we want to grow that. We want to fan that into flame. That's why we encourage Bible reading, not only here in services, but when you go home. That's why we encourage you to study the Bible with other sisters. That's why we give you good, heavy books on theology. That's why we have a women's theology class to teach about core doctrines of the Christian faith. We want you to be built up in God's word so you can help us glorify the Lord together. Encouraged by how zealous you are to learn from the Lord. I pray the Lord would increase your zeal to know more of him and satisfy your growing hunger. But there's a manner in which Paul wants women to learn. And quietly, with all submission. Now, it doesn't mean, obviously, that women are supposed to be totally silent in church. I mean, we see in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, that Paul assumes that women are in the church gathering, praying, and prophesying. His concern there is only that they, they wear the proper attire while they do so. He's not offended that they are praying and prophesying in the church gathering. So, friends, there's nothing unbiblical about a sister praying in church, right? That is a God-honoring thing, and we want to be modeling that more as a congregation, right? Uh, again, it doesn't mean that a woman should be totally silent. We see Paul addressing that elsewhere. And just notice how we, we need to understand this word quietly. We need to read it in context, as with all the scriptures. Remember last week we saw this same word pop up. As Paul urged the church to pray for all authorities. So that believers might lead a peaceful and a quiet life. He didn't mean a silent life. That would deter Christians from our calling to, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Rather, quiet meant not causing ruckus, not leading to disturbance. I think it's the same usage of the word here. As we look at these two verses, I, I think we, we see a kind of a matching unity. right? Notice how, how verse 12 ends with this same concept of remaining quiet, kind of bracketing off this entire section. And in between, I think Paul clarifies what he means in the first half of verse 11 with what he says in the first half of verse 12. And then he clarifies what he says in the second half of verse 11 with what he says in the second half of verse 12. So he says positively in verse 11, what he says positively in verse 11 in the first half, is followed necessarily by what he pro prohibits in the first half of uh, verse 12. So what does it mean for a woman to learn quietly, to not cause disturbance? 
for the first half of verse 12 explains. It means that she does not have responsibility to teach men. One activity is commended, learning, while another is prevented, teaching. Now, that's very clear in the text. It's plainly there, right? I think the problem with this text, this passage, is not its clarity, right, but how it's applied. All right, so it's plain here. Paul prohibits one thing, teaching, while he commends another thing, learning. But what does he mean by that? All right, because we know that he, he doesn't mean that women can't teach at all. all right, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that the entire church is to be teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's prohibited here, however, is the authoritative teaching of doctrine and the gathered church body. And that's what that word teach means in the pastoral epistles, right? It's, it's almost always the kind of formal, authoritative teaching of God's word. Rem remember, Paul in this passage is concerned about the gathered body of believers when the church is together formally. It's altogether right for a sister to actively learn in those settings, but not to take up the mantle of teaching in those settings. We need to make those clarifications because Paul is not saying that a woman cannot teach, right? Kind of point blank, right? And sometimes as men, I think we can take that kind of attitude. Uh, a woman can't teach me nothing. I can't learn anything from a woman. Uh, apart from that being unbiblical, it's also untrue in our own lives. Think of how many sisters have shaped you in knowing the Lord more and loving him better, right? Uh, I mean, think about through the scriptures. Priscilla, with her husband, Aquila, taught Apollos a more accurate way of understanding the scriptures in Acts chapter 18. Women teach us all the time through their prayers and through their singing and through their engagement in Bible study. Sisters, many of you have taught me as you've given feedback as I've been studying these passages on Sunday morning. You've, you've given me nuggets and you've seen them in God's word that have been super helpful. Paul in Titus 2 encourages women to teach one another. Right? And in his second letter to Timothy, he talks about how Timothy has been so shaped by the ministry of his mother and his grandmother. Right? Women have a, a, a key role in teaching God's people. But what's limited, again, is the authoritative teaching of doctrine to men and women in the gathered meetings of the church. So that's why on Sunday mornings, we do not have our sisters here stand up and preach to us. It has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of ability. It has absolutely nothing to do with a lack of Bible knowledge. Our sisters are more than capable, I'm sure. It has everything to do, however, with a glad obedience to God's word here. Right? We sit under God's word, not over it. That's why we don't have women teach mixed Sunday school classes with men and women. It flows out of the same command. And though it's not the, the main formal gathering of the church, it's still a good enough subset of the church, of men and women gathered on the Lord's day, where I think the same principle can wisely be applied. But you know, that's also why we widely encourage our sisters' involvement in so many other areas broadly to use all the giftings and the teachings that the Lord has given you in other settings. Sisters, I hope you don't feel 
that the only way you can be esteemed in a church is if you stand behind the pulpit and preach. We've utterly failed as a church if that's the only place of prominence, of recognition of spiritual maturity in the life of our church. I hope instead that you feel equipped and encouraged to make disciples of Christ in many other ways than preaching and in many other days than on Sundays. It's not just the, the formal teaching of God's word that Paul prohibits on him. It's also the exercising of authority over a man in the church. And notice how it mirrors the command in the latter half of, of verse 11 to, to learn with all submissiveness. What does that look like? Right? What does learning with all submissiveness look like? What it looks like not exercising authority over men. Now, Paul doesn't flesh out specific activities or, or duties, but I think the clearest application is to submit not to all men in the church all the time, but to submit to the authority in the church, to the authoritative teachers and teaching of the church. Learn quietly with all teaching, uh, without teaching, but with all submissiveness to those who are teaching. Instead of seeking to exercise authority over them, humbly sit under them. Women aren't to see male teachers, male leaders in the church, and to gun for their spots. Aren't to question their authority or belittle it, but to humbly submit to it as an act of submission to the Lord. That doesn't mean you never ask questions. That doesn't mean you never raise concerns. That doesn't mean you must say yes to everything. That's a wrong concept of submit. But rather it means that you understand that God has placed these men over you. And instead of trying to cast off their leadership, you instead encourage and support it. Sisters, I'm so thankful for how you model that here in our local church. Not challenging the, the pastoral authority or leadership not bucking up against the teaching of God's word, but gladly submitting to it. I know that's not always easy. I mean, one of Satan's main strategies is to get us to subvert authority, to be suspicious of authority. I mean, that's how he tempted Eve, isn't it? Did God really say you can't eat of this fruit? You know what God's trying to do, right? He's trying to keep you down. Rise up and instead take what's yours. Satan couches sin in terms of empowering you, trying to better you. That's what he does to all of us. He's still doing that same thing today. You know, a lot of the most aggressive opponents of a biblical view of manhood and womanhood are telling a generation of women the same thing that Satan told Eve. Take what's rightfully yours. Don't let nobody tell you what you can't do. And they're doing it under the guise of empowering you. But we need to soberly ask, empowering me for what purpose? For war against God? That's a false and foolish empowering. Because you will never win. But instead only find yourself more opposed to his will. And reaping more judgment upon yourself. This submission the Lord has called you to is not just a female activity. We're all called to submit in one way or another. 
either to government or to parents and all of us to the Lord. Sisters, thank you for modeling that kind of submission for us as you do that to the authorities in the local church. And before we leave off these verses, just, just notice that these two functions that, that God, that Paul limits women from participating in, teaching and exercising authority, are the functions most uniquely tied to elders or pastors in the local church, right? Elders and pastors have the unique responsibility to teach and to, to rule, to exercise authority. So these aren't just specific activities that Paul is prohibiting, but also offices that Paul is saying that women should not hold. Right? Women should not be pastors in the local church. But again, if that's the only role of value in the church, then we're in trouble. Saints, we are all called to be a priesthood of believers. Every member of the local body indispensable. Every member valuable and needed to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. Now there's been a lot of pushback on Paul's words here. On two fronts. One camp says that Paul here is just expressing his own narrow views on society. Right? Notice here he says in verse 2, verse 12, I do not permit these things. But what that view fails to consider is that Paul speaks and writes as an apostle, as a chosen instrument through whom God speaks. He writes, not by his own interpretation, but as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these aren't Paul's ideas. These are God's ideas. Another camp says, okay, these are God's words through Paul being communicated. And so they're binding and authoritative, but only for a limited time and in a limited context. Only in the mess that seems to have existed in this first century Ephesian church. But I think we see that debunked as Paul gives reasons for his charges here in verses 13 and 14. Paul grounds these commands in creation order. Verse 13, look, look at verse 13. He, he says that women should, should hold these positions of submission to male leadership in the church for or because Adam was formed first then Eve. He goes to Genesis chapter 2 where Delano, Delano read for us earlier as the basis for his charge. And again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul interprets the fact that Adam was made prior to Eve as not being just some random order, order of events, only for them back then, but communicating a kind of order of authority that's meant to be carried along and down into the life of the church today. Adam was formed and given authority to name animals and to rule over the earth and to tend and to guard the Garden of Eden. And then Eve was formed out of Adam, of the same essence as him, but with a different function, to be his helper, to give necessary support to him. Paul says that's one basis for the difference of men's and women's roles in the church. God designed men and women differently to have different functions, but to harmoniously work 
together towards one goal, spreading the glory of God, imaging his beauty and worth to all creation. That's filled the church's role in making disciples of all nations, to make many me's of the Lord, to make images of God remade in the image of Christ. And men and women are both tasked with that work. Both have different functions for how they are to, to go about that work in the church. Men are to lovingly and gently shepherd and take the lead, while sisters offer cheerly, a cheerful, godly, and humble support. But there's a second reason Paul gives to uphold this command that men and women should fulfill distinct but harmonious roles in the church. We see it in verse 14. Now, Adam was not deceived, he says, but the woman was deceived. Now, you can read this, as some have, as saying that men must lead and women must support in the church because the women are more gullible than men and more susceptible to being deceived. But that is not Paul's point here. In saying that the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, Paul is not making a statement about the nature of women. He's simply communicating what we read about in Genesis chapter 3. After Eve was tempted by Satan and ate the fruit that was forbidden and was approached by God and questioned by him, she admitted, the serpent deceived me. But that's hardly a female-only issue. I mean, you don't even get out of the book of Genesis without seeing men widely being deceived. I think of Abimelech being deceived by Abraham, that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Think of Isaac being deceived by Jacob into thinking that he was his brother Esau and thus stealing the blessing of the birthright. I think of Jacob being deceived by Laban into sleeping with and marrying Leah when he wanted Rachel instead. I think of Jacob later being deceived by his sons into thinking that his favorite son, Joseph, had been mauled by a brutal animal rather than sold into slavery by his own brothers. Think of Potiphar being deceived by his wife into thinking that Joseph sexually assaulted him. Think of Judah being deceived by Tamar into thinking that she was a prostitute. Right? You can go on and on and on. You can go out of the Bible to, to see this deception. Of Samson being deceived by Delilah. Of Solomon, the wisest man on earth, being deceived that the gods of his concubines were worth more than the, the God who is the true and living God of Israel. All of us are prone to deception. In, in the flow here, Paul brings up the woman's deception only to show what happens when God's order is overridden. When God sets a thing in place and we buck against it, we try to subvert it, what happens is not that it brings freedom, what happens is that it brings destruction. It brings chaos. Eve stepped out of the place that God had designed for her to submit to her husband. Adam did his role, too. He, he did not own his responsibility to lead. But Eve, in stepping out of her role, was deceived by the serpent and became a transgressor 
and she gave to her husband Adam, and he became a transgressor. And all humanity has been affected by sin since then. Saints, casting off God's rules and his ways never bring what they promise. They bring not deliverance, but disaster, destruction. And so I think Paul's point here is, sister, understand what happened before when God's order was disturbed. Did it really bring help? Did it really bring blessing? Did it really bring life? Did it really bring freedom? The answer is absolutely no. It brought chaos. And so don't try to buck against God's order now. Don't try to take and grab what God hasn't given you. Instead, humbly submit to what the Lord has given you and live under his word so that you might be blessed, so that you might experience the true freedom of living obediently to him. And Paul ends here with hope. Yes, what happened when, when God's roles, when God's order was disturbed was chaos. But what God brings out of chaos is deliverance. What God brings out of the ashes is beauty. What God brings out of sin is salvation. I think we see that in, in verse 15. It's a very strange verse. It's a, a very difficult verse to understand, but I think it's referring to Christ Jesus. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 15. Or chapter 2, verse 15, shall I say. Uh, Paul says there this. Yet the woman, though she was deceived and became a transgressor, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean, Paul? Well, one thing it doesn't mean, it cannot mean, is that women are saved by giving babies. That's absolutely just not the case. Paul is explicit over and over again that, that no works right, produce salvation. Right? A woman can't be saved. No man can be saved by works. Right? But in the original Greek, in which the New Testament was written, this verse says she will be saved through the childbearing. A, a specific kind of childbearing. And, and what I think Paul is meaning to move our minds to consider as he's walked through a kind of brief history of Genesis, right? He, he said that Adam was formed first and, and then woman, so he takes us to Genesis chapter 2. And yet, right, Eve was deceived, right? Not the man. He, he brings us into Genesis chapter 3. And while we're into Genesis chapter 3, he doesn't leave us in the judgment and the sin of Genesis chapter 3. He leads us from Genesis chapter 3 into the promise of Genesis chapter 3. And so the promise, the beauty of Genesis chapter 3 is not simply that man and women will be destroyed in their sin. The promise of Genesis chapter 3 is found in verse 15. As the Lord approaches the woman and says to the same woman who was deceived, who bucked against authority, who bucked against his order and became a transgressor, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in Childbearing. Oh, I'm sorry, that was 16. Paul tells the woman in, in 15, I will put enmity or hatred between your offspring and, and the serpent. He, the serpent, shall bruise your offspring's head. But he, your, I'm sorry, he, your offspring, Eve, shall bring, bruise the serpent's head. 
but the serpent shall bruise your offspring's head. And then he talks about in verse 16, this childbearing that he was to produce. All right, I bumped that a little bit. But what God is saying to Eve then, I think what Paul is communicating, is that God promised that the woman would give birth to a son. And that son would come and would transform everything. That son would reverse the curse. That curse that was started by man and woman's rebellion against God. That curse that was started from Eve's deception to Adam's willingness to disobey God. And it brought condemnation into the world. Well, that same act God will use to bring from the woman, not simply destruction, but deliverance through the Savior. Because through this seed of the woman was born the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came from heaven in the form of a man, who lived a perfect life of submission to the Lord, modeling to us that worth with God, right, equality with other beings, doesn't mean you can't submit to them. Jesus was of the very form and essence of God, yet he submitted to his heavenly Father, right, in his human form. Men and women are equal, but God is calling us to submit to him both and for women to submit to his order. Not because they're lesser, but as a sign that we believe what the Lord has made is good. God has brought his Savior into the world who saves us from all our sin, right? Women and men, if we would obey him, if we would see that his word and his ways are good for us, right? Paul is saying the woman will be saved, not just women, all mankind. Well, notice here at the end of verse 15, there's a condition. If they continue in faith and love and holiness, I think it's meaning to tell us, don't just assume that just because a Savior was born from a woman, that every single body is going to be saved. No, it's going to require some pressing in. It's going to require some present obedience, right, to all of God's commands, including his instructions here about how both men and women should function in the life of the church. Friends, there's a lot of voices coming at us, telling us a lot of things about how men and women should operate. But there's only one voice that's authoritative, only one voice that means to do you good, only one voice that loves you and that made you and that knows how to operate you. Operating by the world will lead to malfunction. Operating by the Lord's ways will lead to fruition. Live how the Lord has called us to live. Men and women living distinct but harmoniously in the life of the local church in ways that give honor to God and that bless the nations. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that your word would instruct us. Lord, teach us by your word, we pray. Let's soften our hearts so we might not buck against you, buck against your rule. Lord, help men to be models of gentle, humble humility, Lord, and, and leadership. To use our authority well. Lord, not to lord over. And help our sisters to lovingly trust and submit to godly authority as you uh, raise it up. Lord, we pray that we will be a church uh, that serves as an outpost of heaven, showing the watching, watching world what it looks like to live God's way. Help us in our task, Lord, for your glory, for our good, and for the good of all those you've called to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.